I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. How are you? I apologize for my absence on the substantive part of this episode your day job called you away yes i'm sorry it was all about the energy stuff and the windfall tax or the windfall tax that the government is not doing and uh, sorry it just happened to coincide with our timing well you were missed and it's uh, it's a really interesting conversation actually. it is an interesting mm. conversation i'm looking forward to listening to it mm. i've got something to tell you go on ready for a guardian headline yeah i'm going to read this to you and you're going to realize that you are accidentally in fashion, for the first time since Normcore was a thing. I know what you're going to say. Too cool for the pool, how the dry robe I became the most that. divisive thing you can wear. I know, I know. This is, this is the thing you wear when you get out of your open water swimming. Yes, indeed. It says, uh, if cold swimming became the pandemic's Olympic sport, then dry robes were its uniform. With its toweled interior designed to help the sea soaked get dry, the robe is oversized so you can change underneath it, pulling your arms inside to take off your swimwear without flashing. And many find it coat like enough to wear at home. The fashion world has also taken notes of the robe. Grazia magazine has branded dry robes the must have all season coat. There you go. I think this is in large part down to you. I think I've just set the trend, haven't I? <laughs> Accidentally. Because also it said that a little bit of a culture war has begun between the people who think they're ridiculous and, and devotees. So there is a Dry Robe Wankers Facebook group with 478 members. But there is a fan page called Dry Robe Owners Club, which has over 3,000. I only do wear it when I go swimming, though, I want to sort of add. I mean, not that I'm saying people who wear it when they don't go swimming are doing it wrong. But Didn't you tell um, us on the podcast you were cycling wearing it as well? I cycle to swimming. It conjures up sort of a Wicked Witch of the West. It does look a little bit like that. And in fact, I came out of the swimming ponds and met Neil Kinnock the other day. <laughs> and he was having a cup of coffee outside and I joined him. Wow. Um, it was actually Neil Kinnock and Alistair Campbell and Fiona and Rachel Kinnock, who used to work for me, and Tom Baldwin, who used to work for me. Was it some kind of swimming birthday party like kids have? No, they all happened to be outside. Did people lose their minds when they saw you and Neil Kinnock? Because this, to me, would be like seeing David Tennant and Tom Baker in the same place. Nobody seemed to care too much. Nobody bat an eyelid. Was Neil Kinnock wearing a dry robe? He wasn't, no. How long before we see um, Gordon Brown in a dry robe by the outdoor pool? It's being planned. 
Um, so aside from um, a media blitz, what's been going on with you? Well, I am back on the cooking horse. After the disastrous risotto. Because this is not vegetarian and it's not from the one pot, one pan, one planet. It's actually from a book by somebody I met many years ago called Fuchsia Dunlop. It's a Chinese cookbook. Oh, and yeah. It, and it was a chicken in black bean sauce. And it got significant approval. I mean, it was very extremely easy. It's just a stir fry. Anyway, it was it, it, it was a it was a significant success. So this could be your thing then. Cooking. Chinese food. Cliff Barnes. It was he a Chinese food aficionado. Yes. <laughs> the way you looked at me. Chinese like, I was a cultural Everybody knows that about Cliff Barnes. I'm sorry. I can't believe you don't know that. I mean, that is like the basic, that's the like, the, I mean, apart from the fact that he was a loser, you know, that is the most basic fact about Cliff Barnes. When I Google it, it comes up with Chinese takeaway in Barnes. Uh, <laughs> oh, hang on. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's an obituary. Uh, he died in 2019, and it basically says... A running joke with his penchant for Chinese takeaways. Aha. Maybe your mastermind specialist subject could be favourite cuisines of Dallas characters. No, I've actually thought about that. I think if I had a mastermind uh, subject, it would be the 2004 Boston Red Sox, which is when they reversed the curse. It's mainly the playoffs, actually. Uh, Well, I think I know quite a lot about them in 2004, actually. I really want listeners now to set some questions and then I can be the John Humphreys or the Clive Myrie. Uh, You're on. Or the Magnus Magnuson for the younger listeners. You'd be very good, Magnus Magnuson. Send them in through the website, cheerfulpodcast.com. Okay. Do you want to talk about what we're talking about? This week we're talking about magistrates, a hugely important part of our justice system in the UK, but rarely part of the conversation. Now, magistrates are ordinary people who hear cases in court in their community. They make up 85% of the judiciary. They sit in criminal, family and youth courts. They decide on guilt and sentences, as well as dealing with bail applications. And because becoming a magistrate is time-consuming, and to do the role, you have to agree to 13 days of unpaid work a year, traditionally, magistrates tend to come from older, more middle-class backgrounds. Now, in recent times, new powers have been granted to extend the sentences given out by magistrates, and there's been a new recruitment drive by the Ministry of Justice. Is it time to improve the diversity of the magistrates, as well as making the role more accessible to better represent the communities they serve? And to talk about this, we have Luke Rigg, who is National Chair of the Young Magistrates Network, Raj Chadder, who is a leading criminal lawyer who's been critical of the way community justice works in the UK, and Penelope Gibbs, founder of Transform Justice. So that should be good. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful is actually about you and Sarah, because I want to say a big thank you to you, because you bought Justine a very nice present for her 50th birthday, which was a voucher to go to a restaurant of our choice. And we finally got round to it last night. And it was a restaurant in the city. It was extremely nice. It was Indian. When you say restaurant of your choice, it was within this family yes. of restaurants. I've, yes. I've figured out which. It's and, great there, and, yeah. And it was extremely nice. And we had an extremely nice time. And because I'm a bit of a nerd, the significant fact that I wanted to report to you was not about the food, which was very nice, but some dramatic development in relation to City Mapper. Because we cycled to the restaurant and City Mapper 
used to slightly frustrate me because when you went off route, it didn't recalculate. But something has happened to CityMapper since I last used it, which was probably a few months ago. It now recalculates the route. Congratulations. And how was cycling back on a full stomach? To be honest, the cycling back was an effort. That'd be a great business model, actually. What? Somebody who takes your bike home. You cycle to a restaurant or for a night out, and then somebody collects your bike and takes it home for you. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Mm. Maybe you've had a thought. Yeah. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, I've had a funny old week. Uh, it, it was almost Ed-like in the amount of calamity involved because I, I, I got a kidney infection. I know. And before I was able to get a prescription of antibiotics, I, I got a fever and I fell asleep with my glasses on, rolled over onto them and broke them. Oh, no. And then I couldn't see anything. So even though I was feeling a bit poorly, I had to go to the opticians, which is across in a different part of London. So I took a taxi to get there and I left my phone in the taxi. So in the space of 24 hours, I got a kidney infection, broke my glasses and lost my phone. That is just awful. It was quite eddish. So I haven't really really done very much this week but i have watched loads of telly and there's a sitcom that i I quite like on peacock which is nbc's streaming platform called girls five ever and it's produced by tina fey her husband does all the music which is relevant because it's about a 90s girl group who reunite in middle age it's not going to trouble larry sanders or seinfeld in the greatest sitcom of all time list but it's really fun and really likable and theme music is just going around my head constantly You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to begin by talking to Luke Rigg. Now, Luke is National Chair of the Young Magistrates Network. Hello, Luke. Hello. Now, firstly, I uh, I want to say thank you for coming on. And I became interested in this because my friend Becky was telling me that she's interested in becoming a magistrate. And she says what she'd found suggested that it is difficult if you are younger and perhaps less affluent. And my first thought was, hang on, Becky, you're 41. Does that qualify as young by Young Magistrates Network standards? Well, technically, the Young Magistrates Network is for any magistrate under the age of 40, I think including 40 as well. But we had to draw a line somewhere. I'm not saying that just because you're over 40 means you're therefore old, but that was the line that was drawn for magistrates. Great. I'll take great pleasure in letting her know that. <laughs> anyway, then then I've become incredibly interested in the system more generally. And, and we read in the news all the time about magistrates' decisions. They are a big part of justice in this country. But it's, it's not necessarily something that a lot of us have given uh, much thought to. So I wondered if we could start with a kind of quick fire idiot's guide to magistrates and, and just rattle through the basics as quickly as possible. So firstly, who are magistrates and what is the basic idea that underpins it? So magistrates are volunteers who are not paid, they're ordinary members of the public who sit on cases coming to the magistrates' courts so crimes that people have committed that are generally less serious offences, so not the sort of cases that you see in the Crown Courts. They're still serious in their own right, and magistrates will either sentence them if they've pleaded guilty or been found guilty at trial, or we will preside over a trial and decide whether they're guilty or not guilty. That's if they've pleaded not guilty. So I, I like to say it's a bit of a crude analogy, but 
I think we're sort of like juries um, in the juries in the Crown Court are also ordinary members of the public who decide whether someone's guilty or not guilty, but we're dealing with less serious offences. And we also sort of perform the role of a judge because judges sentence in the Crown Court, we do it in the Magistrates Court. And there are judges that sit in the Magistrates Court as well. So the idea is kind of peer justice in the way that juries are, but juries, of course, are randomly selected, whereas magistrate is something that you apply to, and we'll come on to that. So who who can and can't become a magistrate? Anyone between the ages of 18 and 70 can become uh, a magistrate. You don't need any legal qualifications. You don't need to be employed. You could be retired. You might be a student. I became a magistrate whilst I was a student. We're just looking for people who can meet the competencies that we've published online that you might expect being able to make fair judgments, um, to be impartial, be good communicators, to think about different points of view when making decisions. And really, that's what the application process is testing. But the whole point is it's meant to be done by lay people. And is there anyone who fits those criteria but then can't become a magistrate? There might be some people in particular professions, such as police officers, for obvious reasons. Just because you've had a previous conviction doesn't necessarily stop you from becoming a magistrate, but it depends on the nature of the conviction and when it took place. And in terms of sentencing powers, I think you can tend to think of a magistrate's powers as being like the things you'd find in the community chest pile on a Monopoly board. Can you just give us an idea, perhaps, of the range of sentencing powers at magistrate's disposal? Yes, yeah, so our sentencing powers range right from what what is probably the the, the lowest um, sentence we can give, which is called an absolute discharge, and there's also a conditional discharge, so long as they don't commit an offence over the period that we defined, then this sentence goes away. Then we have fines, which are based on the person's weekly income, so the, the, the level of fine can range quite considerably depending on the uh, wealth of that individual. Then we have community orders, so that's unpaid work, rehabilitation, group exercises, one-to-ones, right up to prison. And at the moment, we can send someone to prison for up to six months for one imprisonable offence. We can also suspend those prison sentences. In terms of what it asks of you in terms of time and commitment, what, what does that look like? So once you're appointed, you will have several days of initial training that covers the basics of what you need to do as a magistrate. And then you will start sitting with a mentor who's an existing magistrate. I'm a mentor at the moment for a brand new magistrate on my bench who's a similar age to me. And you'll have that mentor for the first year or two. And there is annual training that's a couple of days, depending on the circumstances. But an important point to make is that you're not thrown out there on your own in court. Every bench of magistrates has a legal advisor who sits in front of them in court, and they are legally trained, and they make sure that everything we do is legal. Every decision we make is within the law. And and do you have to commit to a certain number of hours per month or, or per year? Yeah, so the uh, minimum requirement is 13 days per year. Uh, You can do more than that, uh, but the minimum is 13. And what was it that made you want to become a magistrate? So I, at the time, I was thinking of studying law and uh, I was invited to my local magistrate's court to see what happened there and to meet some of the solicitors and barristers. And until that day, and I was in sixth form at the time, so I was 17, until that day, I had no idea what a magistrate was. I thought everything was done by judge and jury. 
And then on that day, I met three magistrates who inspired me to do the same and become uh, magistrates. I have to say, as well as finding the whole day really, really interesting, and that's the primary reason why I became a magistrate, because I thought, well, I'd like to do this. I also did notice that the magistrates I saw there on that day and then doing a bit more research at home realised that about 50% of magistrates are over the age of 60 and yet most of the people I saw in court that day were my age or, or a bit older, they were in their 20s then and I'm in my 20s now. And I do, I do genuinely think that it's important that we improve representation of magistrates in the system because I think we could probably get better buy-in from the people we see in court if they're looking ahead and, and seeing people who look a bit more like them. So what are, what are the obstacles to that then? There are two reasons. There's the time commitment because most young magistrates and, and most young people generally are, are more likely to be employed. So getting that time off is really difficult, having the conversation with your employer. Now, am I right in thinking your employer is obliged to give you the time off but isn't obliged to, to pay you? Exactly. You're entitled to it under, under the current law. You're entitled to time off, but your employer doesn't have to pay you. And, and that's often when it, come, it, it will come down to individual conversations with your employer as to whether they are going to pay you or not. If you're self-employed, you can claim what's called financial loss allowance, but that's capped at, I think, the median salary in the country. So if you're earning above that, then you are still making a loss, but at least there's something there. But yes, having that conversation with your employer is difficult. If you're working in particular sectors, I work in the public sector and generally the public sector is more accommodating to this sort of arrangement. It's your SMEs where you're, you've got the challenges and obviously that won't come as a surprise. But the second reason, it possibly is that the most significant reason why there aren't enough young people is there just isn't the awareness out there. At the moment, there are 12,000 magistrates. So on each bench you might, and that's a local area within the country, you might have a couple of hundred magistrates on each bench. It's not actually going to take much to increase the representation of young magistrates on that bench. We're not talking about large numbers here of new magistrates being recruited. Nationally, the government's trying to recruit 4,000 new magistrates. If we can get the message out there, and that's obviously one of the, 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 the reasons why I'm here, so I can tell people who are listening that this is something that they should certainly consider. The awareness is just not there, particularly among younger people. They just don't know that this opportunity exists. And it sounds like to some extent, though, that even if they did, um, you you might attract more younger people, but you still end up with these problems around perhaps affluence, people who can afford it, and then sort of other diversity factors. Certainly, I, I think that social diversity is somewhat the elephant in the room in all of this. There's definitely room for improvement there. And to respond to that, one of the things that we in the Young Magistrates Network have done is tried to work with the government to improve the support for employed magistrates. Because we know that even if you get into the system and, and your initial employer is happy with you sitting as a magistrate, if you change jobs, you have to have the conversation all over again. You might even just change line managers and the new line manager might not get it. And it's really basic things like providing a comprehensive suite of information and documents and tools to help those employed magistrates manage and navigate those conversations with their employer. Often we find that then the magistrates don't necessarily know how to articulate the skills they get from being a magistrate in the workplace. And that's one of the things I've found is that the skills I'm getting in court unparalleled. I'm getting more exposure to the development of skills such as 
persuasion, communication, public speaking. I speak in court. I'm a trainee chair. That's the person who sits in the middle and does all the talking. I'm getting so much more exposure to those skills than I am at work. And I do genuinely think that's actually helping me and my employer. And thinking about this voluntary aspect, which kind of underpins the idea of peer justice to, to some extent, but then trying to square that with financial loss, there's perhaps something you could do in terms of incentivizing employers, but that wouldn't help out, for example, a uh, a self-employed person or uh, a full-time parent, perhaps, or a student. And then if you go the other way uh, and you, you do offer some kind of financial compensation, then do you risk getting people doing it for the wrong reason? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly important that the magistracy, which has been in existence since the 1300s in some shape or form, has changed considerably since then. But it's always been built on the principle that the jury system is built on, that it's lay people playing their civic, you know, really important civic role and doing it for their their sort of contribution to the community and, and wider society. That There is a problem that there will be a specific group of people who financially struggle to be able to sit as magistrates. I know that magistrates are able to claim expenses for their caring responsibilities. And that's really important to say, just generally magistrates can claim expenses for travel to and from court. We get a small lunch allowance there are other areas of expense that they can claim. I think there's a specific issue with SMEs where losing an employee to sit as a magistrate is going to just factually going to have a more significant impact. That's a different challenge to a larger organisation that can probably absorb it better. So it's the ongoing conversations that I'm having with the government. They need to recruit more employed magistrates. And that is going to mean changing the system to make it more flexible. And and it's part of it that it's something that's grown out of a 14th century system. In the bit of reading up I've done on this before talking to you, it it seems like something that's not replicated in other countries. Yeah, my understanding is certainly that England and Wales has a fairly unique system in the way that our criminal justice system is somewhat dependent on magistrates. We deal with about 95% of all criminal cases, and yet we're not paid. We're not professional members of the judiciary. So we're called justices of the peace. That's our formal title, but better known as magistrates. There are similar-ish models of justices of the peace in other, I think, Commonwealth countries, but they've evolved to become more professional and paid. Um, but it's a very, so it's a very different model to the one we've got. I do think it is very important that we keep this principle of being tried by your peers and that lay people taking an active role in this really important civic contribution. But yeah, it's very different to the rest of the world. But, th- but then again, when you, th- you think of having a conversation with somebody who, from another country who doesn't know about this and saying to them, guess who presides over 95% of criminal cases in, in our country? The answer would seem strange to them. Yeah, and it would be the same for the general public in England and Wales. Many of my friends had no idea what um, was going on in the magistrates court, the criminal justice system as a whole. And on the training and the amount of training, I was thinking about the the route that people would have to take to become judges, you know, a long storied legal career. And there's a lot of training and experience that goes with that. And there can be something that makes me a little bit queasy, I think, 
people without all of that handing out sentences that can really impact on people's lives for a long time, be it fines that would push people into debt or prison sentences, which could affect mental health of children into adulthood. What, what kind of consideration is given to that? Well, I'll go back to my, to my earlier point, is that we have a qualified legal advisor in court who sits in front of us and advises us on the law. We as magistrates are the ones that make the decision, but we are always advised on every case by our legal advisor. And they make sure that we are following the law. We're also assisted by a document called the Sentencing Guidelines, which makes principally is about making sure there's a consistent approach to sentencing across the country. I think on balance, it's it's a good system in enabling ordinary members of the public to decide legal cases involving their peers with, I think, a decent level of check and checks and balances from legally qualified advisor. And do those advisors present you with the advice or do you ask questions of them? Uh, both. So we all, And we always do that in open court so that the uh, prosecutor and the defence solicitor, who are the two key solicitors involved in most cases, they can hear that as well. And it's really important, particularly as the chair, to make sure that you're engaging a legal advisor. Is it ever harrowing? I'm just thinking about some of the family cases you might hear or some of the cases around assault. Just think about you psychologically. That must be hard, I guess. Yeah, it's certainly challenging. It was challenging for me when I first started sitting because as someone who didn't know anything about the magistrate's court system and wasn't intimately involved with it, just being in a magistrate's court room full stop is a fairly novel experience. You'll have gone a few times to observe before you apply to become a magistrate, but still the whole experience is a little daunting and it would be odd if it wasn't daunting for someone who was taking on that role, to to be fair. Um, Yeah, there are individual cases that have a, a greater impact on you, depending on the circumstances of those cases. I think what's important is that at the end of each day, the three of us as magistrates with our legal advisor have what's called a post-court review. And that's where we leave the courtroom and have a discussion about the cases. And that is often an opportunity to talk about any particular difficulties that we encountered, any emotional impact that those cases had. And is there further support available to you on that? Yeah, there is. I'm, I'm pretty sure that we have access to wellbeing support like we do in the workplace. Within each bench, there is pastoral support from a bench leadership team that are made up of magistrates to provide that magistrate to magistrate pastoral support. Tell us about the Young Magistrates Network then. I think there will be people listening to this whose interest will have been piqued and are perhaps thinking uh, about applying themselves. Tell us specifically about the work you do with the network. So the Young Magistrates Network was set up in 29. Prior to that, there was no network or group representing young magistrates. To give you a bit of context, I've said that there are 12,000 magistrates in England and Wales. About 4% are under the age of 40 and about 1% are under the age of 30. And bearing in mind, you can apply to be a magistrate from the age of 18. It is um, obviously concerning that there are so few young magistrates. So the network was set up to try to better support those younger magistrates. And we've been trying to work with the government to create lots of um, reforms to the system to make it more flexible for younger magistrates and and making sure that as part of this national marketing campaign, we are reaching younger audiences. And I'm hoping through this podcast, we can reach a few more. 
And, and just to finish with a, a kind of reason to be cheerful, really, mm. what, what have you got out of it in the time that you've been a, a magistrate, a young magistrate? I have met some really interesting people in courts. Magistrates are people from all walks of life. And meeting those people, working with them and understanding their perspectives on particular cases and life generally, I think has been really enriching. That's the internal focused reason why. The external reason why, yes, it's about giving back to your community. It's playing a uniquely important civic role in society. And then at the same time, you're developing huge skills that are transferable in your personal and professional life. So for all of those reasons, I would encourage anyone, particularly younger people, to consider becoming a magistrate. Wonderful. Well, Luke, thank you so much for explaining the, the system, the challenges that you have within it at the moment and your own experience. I'm not tempted, only because at my age, I would be part of the problem, not part of the solution. <laughs> We're looking for anyone, but... <laughs> okay. um, but Luke Rigg, National Chair of the Young Magistrates Network. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. All right, we're going to spend some time now digging into some of the challenges with the system that came up there with Raj Chadder, who is a criminal lawyer. Hello, Raj. Hi, Jeff. I, I came to this subject expecting a diversity problem within the magistrature. But looking at the 2018 figures, which I think are the most recent ones, it's 56% women and 13% from Black, Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds, which compares with 13.8% of the population. So so it just, just in those terms, gender and ethnicity, it looks pretty similar to the community. Not, not saying that there's not work to be done, but is, is that a misleading way of looking at it? I think it can be a misleading way, uh, and it doesn't take into account class. And, and that is by far one of the biggest issues, I think, in the magistrate's court. 
I think, as you've probably been told, 95% of cases that um, are criminal end up in the magistrate's court. But um, they are often judged by people who have no no idea of what it's like to be in the position that our clients are in. And, and when you're making assessments about what's reasonable, what's proportionate, what you would do when an officer approaches you in a particular way, that, then that does become a difficulty. So then is that a fundamental flaw in this system going back hundreds of years? Or is it something that could be fixed through the right type of recruitment or screening? I think there's there's two things. We're all in favour of community justice in that wider sense. The, the issue is whether the magistrate's court currently represents that, because partly because of recruitment, partly because so many magistrate's courts have been closed, that they don't really represent that idea of community justice. So irrespective of the class that the magistrate is, at least you used to know your local area, you used to know what was going on. You used to know the street that somebody would have got stopped in. And, and so you could have some idea about that. that, that that's not the same anymore. Uh, and I think we've lost that sense of community justice. And, and I was thinking specifically about the range of human experience you would have encountered by the time you become a judge versus what that might look like by the time you, you're accepted to become a magistrate. That seems like it would be two very different things to me. Well, there's two very different roles in a way as well, because certainly when, when we appear in the magistrate's court, it can be more difficult in front of lay magistrates when you have to present quite complicated legal arguments. They, they have no legal training. They are advised by a legal advisor in court, but they're still the ones that need to make the ultimate decision. Uh, and when you're arguing about fundamental human rights, as, as we often do in the Magistrates' Court, the European Convention on Human Rights, it, it is certainly helpful to have a professional judge there that is aware of the case law, understands the point that you're getting at. Uh, and certainly matters can take longer with lay magistrates where there's complicated legal arguments. So Luke would say to that, I guess, that the support that the magistrates receive from the legal advisors goes a long way to helping out with that. It goes some way. You know, of course, it goes some way that, that they are advised by, by their legal advisor, but they're the ones that make the decision. And it depends on how proactive your legal advisor is. Sometimes they overstep the mark, ironically, and, and try and say, well, well, this isn't a defence, this isn't a defence. But they're not the ones making the decision. Uh, and it is a somewhat bizarre set of circumstances that, that I could go to a court and make a, you know, a two, three day case in, in relation to a European Convention argument. And I do that in front of somebody that has no legal training whatsoever. But if you're pro the idea of community justice, how do you bridge that gap? I think there's, there's two things. Firstly, there are a section of the magistrates that are professional judges, district judges. And so you may need to allocate cases more clearly, some to lay magistrates, some to district judges. Secondly, I think that community justice should mean that. We, we had the idea, it was about 10, 15 years ago, of, of drugs courts in piloted in London and Liverpool, whereby not only would you deal with the offender when they first came to court, but that judge would be allocated to 
review the offender's progress. And so the offender would come back in six months' time. The, the judge would take an interest in that particular individual, would get to know the circumstances of that individual and see how they could help them along. Now, that's really true community justice. That's modelled on the drugs courts in America. And I think it's incredibly expensive, but those that's probably the way, the way forward. I think in terms of a more general outlook, uh, I think one of the solutions might be to have a district judge along with two lay magistrates, which is similar to the system that you have in the Crown Court when there's an appeal from the magistrates to the Crown Court. You still don't get a jury trial, but what you get is a Crown Court judge with two lay magistrates and then you have a, a better balance. Isn't it a feature of magistrates that the the longer the magistrates do it, and assuming there's a range of experience on any three panel of magistrates, that the the type of empathy or awareness of impact that you're talking about would develop anyway? Well, well it actually might happen the other way, because what defence lawyer says is that they become case hardened. So they, they say, I've heard this excuse before, and you're the 10th person to have run that, that past me. And so there's a real problem in the magistrates about tribunals becoming case-hardened. And that's why you go for a jury trial, somebody that's fresh to this and somebody that's looking at this on a once-off, if you like, and saying, what are the merits of this particular case? Just to talk a bit more broadly about the subject you brought up at the beginning, and, and there's a quote, I was struck by this quote from you in a Guardian article about the government's recruitment of magistrates. You use this phrase, there's a perception of an officer class pronouncing judgment on those of a different class. Can you explain that a little? The criminal justice system is riddled with class inequities. It, it's a really strange place to be at times because you have defendants that are generally of a lower social class, possibly haven't been working for many years, and you have them represented by university-educated lawyers, often Oxbridge lawyers, and then judges or lay magistrates that are very middle class and, again, don't have those life experiences. And so when you look at it from the outside and you step outside it, you really see the difference. You, you can see it in the accents. You, you can see it in demeanour. And it feels like something is being done to the participants in the criminal justice system. And that's both defendants and victims, actually, often, rather than them being a participant in the criminal justice system. We as lawyers and the judges can talk about uh, various legal issues. And the risk is that the defendant and, as I say, sometimes the victim are just left behind a bit and, and are, are there viewing what's going on. What can feel confusing about that to me is you've got this situation where the lawyers are, by necessity, highly trained, university educated, with with all the implications of a typical social background that that suggests. It, it seems to me that magistrates should be able to mitigate that in some way. Yeah, I, I, I think that could be one of the strengths uh, of the magistrates' court system that they are from the community that they represent, as it were, but they're not. It's generally still, despite your stats, it still seems to be certainly older white middle-class individuals that sit on judgment. Why can't we recruit 
those that work with young people in that particular area. So, you know, those that have run youth centres or are youth workers, they're never magistrates at, at the minute. But we need to think about how people could give up their time to do that. And there is this recruitment drive, 4,000 new magistrates. It's been streamlined via online application. This is in part because of the backlog caused by the pandemic. Do you think that will go any way to fixing these issues? It could do. It depends, obviously, how they recruit. But it doesn't deal with some of those fundamental issues of of difficulties in the magistrates' court and how it's set up. And the government wants to increase the jurisdiction of magistrates so that they deal with more serious cases. And it's just quite clear that if a defendant is given a choice, by and large, they would always choose a jury trial. And and there's some before you get into the rights and wrongs of that. There's something just fundamentally wrong with that perception, even that a defendant and a lawyer does not think you're going to get a fair crack of the whip in the magistrates court. And we have to start examining why. So we we have a thing on the podcast, the Jeffocracy, which is a, a utopia where we fix all uh, every problem that we encounter in any given week. We apply the solution. If we were to appoint you. I don't know if you'd be Lord Justice or maybe just a a minister with special remit for community justice. What is the first thing you would do on day one? I would go back to the idea of some sort of drugs court or specialist courts that are based in the local community. They don't need to be in magistrate's court. They could be in the local community centre for those low-level offences, possession of drugs and areas like that, uh, and start treating some of the matters that come into the criminal justice system really as as social issues rather than criminal matters. And, and that would try to separate out some of those lower order offences to some of the more serious offences that will need to be tried in more formal settings. Well, good luck in your, uh, your new job in the Jeffocracy, Raj. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, uh, Raj Chadda. Thank you very much. Finally, we have founder of Transform Justice, Penelope Gibbs. Hello. Hi, good to see you. I'm keen to talk to you about Transform Justice, but but also because you yourself have been a magistrate. And I wondered if we could start with kind of your, like your, your reflections on that, if that isn't too broad a question, just maybe what you thought it would be going into it, what you learned both about that role and uh, the, the role it plays within the justice system and the people and the types of people who do it? Well, it was a long time ago that I was a magistrate. So I started in 2004 and the whole process to become one is inordinately long as well. So I started maybe a year and a half before that to try and become one. And I get, you know, to be honest, I don't, I just thought, oh, it's really interesting. I want to make a difference, a positive difference, that kind of worthy thing to do. And I didn't know much about it. And unfortunately, after three years, I didn't, I still didn't know as much as I should have done about the criminal justice system uh, and kind of what really works in terms of helping, supporting people to stop doing crime. You know, it, it was interesting. And the other magistrates were really nice people. And there was a, a sort of esprit de corps. Uh, of of kind of doing it together. But I would say, looking back on it, I'm pretty nervous about how little I knew, given the kind of power that magistrates have. This is the astonishing thing, just having had these conversations today. 
I, I had no idea it was such a huge part. I mean, by vast majority of um, of, of the courts in this in this country, did did you become more or less convinced? Of in principle, the the idea of magistrates and um, community justice or lay justice. The thing that's tough and challenging is should kind of people who don't have a law degree and uh, don't get much training actually be in that position of power? And in other European countries, they think we're balmy. They have nothing like it. People in other European countries do university courses to be judges. So... It, it is an odd system, but I actually think we there is something good in judgment by peers. By the problem is when I, I was about to say ordinary people, but they're not ordinary people, and that is part of the flaw of the system at the moment. So I think that if we could take what we what there is and reform it quite significantly, it would be an okay system of justice. The alternative, which is what we have in the magistrates' courts, called district judges, very little known about. They're paid, employed judges. But what I wouldn't be happy with is them on their own because they sit alone. There is nobody, there's no what's called bench, which is magistrates sitting as three. So they make decisions on their their own. There's this image of huge crown courts and juries and all this kind of stuff. Most people don't get anywhere near there. And most people, in fact, plead guilty, not not guilty. So most people who are convicted don't go to trial. There's something there that has that's been vexing me. And I, I don't feel great saying it, but because you're not this type of person, I think I can confess this to you. But I think I, I have this... I don't know if it's a stereotype or an idea of a personality type of somebody who might want to be a magistrate, which is possibly offensive and a bit outdated, but maybe somebody who is a bit kind of crime and punishment fixated, somebody who would would enjoy doling out comeuppance. And it was occurring to me that even if you were able to fix problems around gender and, and other diversity issues, how, how do you screen for personality type? I'm not saying that person has no place. Hang them and flog them. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are a few. I, I, weirdly, I don't think that is the majority. They're good people generally. And yes, you should screen out those most kind of punitive people. And interestingly, I think they're trying to do it in their recruitment process. So one would hope that they would be able to screen them out. But I would, a few get through, not that many. There's lots of people who just feel this is going to be a really interesting volunteer opportunity and, you know, I want to just do it well. So Raj said to us that almost every criminal case where they're pleading not guilty, they would rather take their chances with a jury than go before a magistrate. That suggests that the idea of magistrates as community justice, as, as, as peers, works in principle, but there's something about it that's not working if consistently that decision is made, because in a way it should be uh, a, a, a comparable decision. Yeah, it's true. And nearly all lawyers would advise people to go up 
and be heard in the Crown Court if they could in front of a jury. But it's partly to do with the system as well, because the resources and the sort of just the processes are just more thorough in the Crown Court. So at its worst, magistrates court justice, you know, I refer to it as conveyor belt justice. But the justice in the magistrates court can be good, but it can be ropey as well. And I think that the process of going through the case and hearing it all and having a jury, you, personally, I, I would do that myself if I had a choice. Talk to me a little bit about why you founded Transform Justice and how Transform Justice relates to uh, Magistrates Court. I founded Transform Justice because I, I felt that the courts and the justice system was unfair in many ways. And that in the main, we have looked at crimes at the lower end of the, the spectrum. And how it relates is that we what we're trying to do is look at what happens in the magistrate's court elsewhere in the justice system, shine a light on where it's not really going right and try and get change. And I think one one example of where it seems to be going a bit wrong is under 18s who are remanded. So remand is like you're awaiting your trial and you've pleaded not guilty and our kind of justice system says you really ought to be in the community as you because you're innocent until proven guilty. But the rate of remanding teenagers before their trial is quite high and they end up in children's prisons. And there was uh, some figures which came out the other day which said that on average, nine out of 10 of those under 18-year-olds who are remanded in magistrates' courts don't go on to be sentenced to prison or custody. So, so then how optimistic do you feel about the government drive to recruit 4,000 new magistrates? And they're talking about streamlining the process and just to make it quicker, uh, applications being done online. Will that solve any of that just through weight of numbers? It comes back to your thing about can you screen out the Hangham and Floggums? And I would say... I still think this process and and the sort of culture around it is going to lead to more compliant people coming through. And I think ideally our, our magistrates are diverse, both in the kind of the things you expect, like ethnicity, age, gender, sexual orientation, et cetera, et cetera. You want all that and it's not there at the moment, but also you want diversity of thought and you want some not total mavericks, but people who are really willing to to really challenge and speak out. And I'm really happy that they're doing this recruitment process, but I still feel that the process, so you you have to get references. Now, that's something that in a lot of communities, they don't ever have jobs with references. What's that about? And you should read the list. Like, you're not allowed to have somebody you live with. You're not allowed to have somebody from your family. You've got to have somebody local. You've got to have your employer. You know, it's like a list of 10 things this reference has got to do. And like, I just think in the end, if you want magistrates who really are 
representative of the people, you you have to kind of almost tear all that up and start again. Have you got any ideas on that? I think that I would certainly do a shorter form. And I'd also do a kind of some kind of buddy system as well, because I kind of think at the moment they've got a nice website, but it doesn't say anywhere, look, you can phone this number and we'll put you in touch with somebody who's a magistrate already and they'll have a chat with you or they'll have a coffee with you or whatever. I I think that would help. And then what they need to do is look at people who are really doing radical things in terms of recruitment and see if it would work in this context. I mean, I know they've got to be very kind of uh, upstanding people and all that kind of stuff. And they do, but I think there's ways and means of getting there which which don't involve this long application process. I'm not saying appoint a bunch of hardened criminals as magistrates, but is, is there sort of an, a problem in that, though, that you're having human beings with few flaws look at flawed human beings? One of the main areas is class. And... Inevitably, because of the way the criminal justice system works, there are one in six people in this country has a criminal record. And if if they're people from poorer backgrounds, that's likely to be much higher. So we're talking like huge proportions with criminal records. So I agree. I don't think it should be a bar. Have you got any thoughts on this fundamental issue of um, people being excluded on the basis of time or money yes and that's another problem that the kind of system is been the same for about you know umpteen years that you're supposed to take these 13 days of sitting and you're supposed to get the permission of your employer and I mean I know the recruitment process is very thorough and probably quite expensive but given that you only get about two and a half days training at the beginning. I don't really understand why you have to do it for five years, but also to have to to make somebody sign up for five years volunteering, I think that would be quite uh, off-putting to lots of communities. Or pay people to do it, that's the other idea. Actually pay people. And what do you think of that idea? Because the, the incentive changes. I think if as long as it's not... <laughs> frankly, a huge amount of money, I think I think it's okay. I know this kind of puts you on the spot, but just to, to finish with, and you know, given that you started by talking about how really our magistrate system is somewhat of a, an anachronism, um, can, can you give us something to feel upbeat about, about the magistrate system? It is brilliant that People who Luke or even people younger than Luke can literally, with no legal training whatsoever, can apply to this role and then really understand if they sit longer than I did, frankly. Luke's very expert now and they can really contribute to not sending people to prison or doing the right thing by people who get into trouble with the law. So in the wider sense of extending the the number of people who actually understand what's going on in the criminal justice system and getting people who are nothing to do with it into it, it's a really good idea. And this recruitment drive is a great idea because we desperately need more. 
Penelope, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And uh, it's so interesting to talk to you and hear about uh, all the work you do with Transform Justice. Thank you so much. Well, that was a fascinating discussion. What did you think? Well, I thought it was going to be about diversity, um, that the system favours older wealthier typically white people because of the time commitment involved and there you know there's a big truth to that but from those conversations i was even more struck by what an odd system it is that the vast majority of criminal court appearances are presided over by unpaid volunteers who only need a couple of days training so so there's a, a queasiness i have about that but as both luke and penelope said if those magistrates are an accurate reflection of their communities, there is something good and interesting about the principle of peer justice, even if it is a somewhat unique one. But it's broken because, as Raj pointed out, if it worked, then why would almost all criminal cases choose jury over magistrates? So it does seem like the fix is diversity, but beyond just the usual demographics. We like citizens' involvement. We like a deliberative democracy. And so it does feel good to have something that involves people, but it's the lack of randomness. If jury duty, for example, I think would be completely discredited if juries were only made up of people who wanted to be jurors. So it's how you um, get over that problem. But I thought Penelope had some interesting thoughts on that. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Woohoohoo. We're in the outro. And we want to pay tribute. Well, our colleagues at the Talking Politics podcast have announced that they're hanging up their microphones. I think you hang up your headphones just on a technicality. Ugh. Yes, you're right. I thought I thought I'd impress you by with that. Yeah, no, I don't know what you do with your microphone actually. Okay. Well, anyway, they are hanging up their headphones. And this is this is one of your personal favorite podcasts. It is. How are you going to cope without David Runciman's dulcet tones? I know. I might just to rig him up. Maybe there's a, a, a niche career for him as well as his uh, day job. Ah, um, he could go on that celebrity thing. Yeah, cameo. Cameo for people who are missing his voice. That's a really good idea. I'll recommend it to him. But it's an excellent podcast. um, And it's obviously sad that they're stopping, but uh, they're going out at the top of their game as I texted him. But if you know any of their listeners who are distraught and they need a new home, we will give them shelter. Exactly. We will clasp them to our comely bosom. I just thank our guests for being so generous with their time. Luke Rigg. Raj Chadder and Penelope Gibbs. Emma Caution produces our podcast. Thank you to Emma for getting it sounding uh, nice and sparkly every week. Joe Kenyon from Goldfish uh, has provided all the research and backup and guest booking for us. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dents and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been parading in his dry robe. He's been confined to his dressing gown. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. 
That's stamps.com code program.